Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. I'm going to ask if you would to find your copy of Scripture, Ecclesiastes. We're going to read uh, from chapter 12 here in just a few moments, continuing in a sermon series entitled Worship and Worldview, the Intersection of Church and Culture. And I really think this is a well, I know this is a fitting text for me today. I left last Sunday's worship services uh, feeling defeated, uh, exhausted, and I came home and I really couldn't put, put descriptions to it. My wife will tell you. You can ask her about it. Just, uh, just for, for a hard, hard week. I know some of it was the content of what I preached last week. I know some of it was spiritual warfare. I know some of it was emotional exhaustion, but I'm just going to be honest with you. There were times last Sunday and Monday where I felt a lot like the writer of Ecclesiastes describes the things going on in the world. Disillusioned, listless, vain, meaningless. And I tell you that uh, not because I want your pity. I do want your prayers. Uh, Always covet your prayers. But because uh, it astounds me at the glory of God's sovereignty. Here's why. When we go through a book of the Bible, like we just finished Hebrews recently, I know what I'm going to preach the next week, right? It's the next paragraph. But when we choose a sermon series that's more thematic and organization, it was months ago that I selected the, the different texts we would be looking at as we worked through this sermon series. And I didn't really sit down and think, okay, this sermon needs to follow this sermon or this text follows this one. I just organized it as as I kind of felt led. And God, I firmly believe, orchestrated this text, this sermon for me for this week. Because what pulled me out of that that funk that I was in on Monday and Sunday and And last week was opening up God's Word and reading about the truths of vanity and listlessness and meaninglessness and studying that this week. God pulled me out of that. I talked to some people. I talked to my wife. Other people were encouraging. God used circumstances to help. But primarily what God did is he got me in his Word studying a text that described how I felt. And then pulled me out of that by helping me see the truths of Scripture. Folks, God is at work. He is sovereignly working in your life and in my life and in the situations behind us and through us. And he's doing so because he doesn't want us to struggle with meaninglessness and listlessness. In the text, in the book of Ecclesiastes, probably written by Solomon, uh, though not every scholar thinks it was written by Solomon, probably. Uh, Solomon begins, I think it was, identifies himself as the preacher in verse 1. And all throughout the text, he's talking about the subject of vanity. The Hebrew word is hebel. It carries with it the idea of vapor or wind. (sighs) Blow a breath. It's gone. It's done. And he talks about that all throughout the text. And at the beginning of this book, in verse 2, he says, All is vanity. Not exactly the same word, word hebel. It's kind of a vocalization of it. It's, a, it's just a, a portion of that word. It's just trying to say, okay, it's just a breath. All is, that's it. And then the book closes that way too. Chapter 12, verse 8. All is vanity. And in the middle of it, Solomon says all sort of things are vanity. He says our toil is vanity. He says 
all of the things that he experienced, the pleasures and the, and the family and the, and the circumstances of life, the wives that he had, vanity, book learning, vanity, effort, vanity. He calls it all vanity. It, all of it, he said, is meaningless, kind of worthless, listless. It's just like a breath in the wind. And, and I've entitled this sermon, Vanity and the Best a Man Can Do. And the reason I said that, or titled it that way, is because I, I think Solomon wrote it because it fits his biographical history. He wrote the book of Proverbs, compiled the book. He, he prayed to God as a teenager, God give me wisdom. And God gave him wisdom. And we see that in the book of Proverbs. And he wrote the love poem there to his, his bride in the Song of Solomon. And then what we see at the latter part of his days is the book of Ecclesiastes. And he had drifted, and we'll talk about how he drifted and why he drifted in a little bit in the text. But he drifted, and he gets to the end of his life, and he looks back, and he says, all of it is it's meaningless. It's listless. I'll be honest with you. I'm not sure that there's a book of the Bible that more aptly describes contemporary culture than the book of Ecclesiastes. So much of what we put so much effort and energy into when all is said and done, it's going to be vapor, a breath, a wind, done, vanity, meaningless. And so what do we do with that? How do we as Christians today take the lessons from the book of Ecclesiastes and, and put them into practice in a way that helps us live lives that are not meaningless and listless and vapor? Read with me, if you will, chapter 12. We'll read all the chapter. For those of you that are older, I want you to think about it in terms of uh, kind of this poem of old age. That's really where he starts in, in the latter part of chapter 12, just a reflection on aging. And then he gives us some warnings and, and some instructions. He writes, Remember your, also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars that are darkened and the clouds return after the rain in the day when the keepers of the house tremble, the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut when the sound of the grinding is low, one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. They're afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along. Desire fails because man is going to his eternal home. And the mourners go about the streets before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern. And the dust returns to earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. Such a pessimistic text. A book that looks back on all the things he had done and said and experienced. Hopeless, vain, worthless. Most scholars do not attribute the next few verses to Solomon uh, or to the original writer, they think it's a postscript added by an editor who's kind of compiling the wisdom literature, Proverbs and Song of Solomon and Ecclesiastes together. In any case, it is a beautiful and fitting ending of the book, whether it was Solomonic authorship or an editor added it after the fact. Notice what the, what the postscript says. All is vanity. And that's why many think that it closed there because it formed an inclusio with verse 2 of chapter 1. 
Notice the postscript. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. Weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care, the preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They're given by one shepherd, probably an allusion to Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these, of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So how do we as Christians living some 3,000 years removed from the writings of the book of Ecclesiastes, how do we make sure that we don't find ourselves at the end of our lives, at, the, at this poem about old age, how do we find ourselves there and not look back and say everything was vain, everything was unimportant, everything was meaningless? What do we do? Let me give you two practical uh, applications from the book of Ecclesiastes. The first is this. Identify the formational liturgies behind our vain pursuits. I want to explain that, but identify the formational liturgies behind our vain pursuits. What happened to Solomon? Why did he, why did he write with such full wisdom in Proverbs? And then get to Ecclesiastes and even say his wisdom and his study and his knowledge and his understanding was vanity. Why? What happened? Well, Solomon started out on a good pattern underneath the, 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 the Lord's leadership, seeking wisdom from God, seeking direction. And then over the course of years, he believed his own press. Started to think, yeah, I'm wise. And you know, one of the wisest things I can do to protect Israel's future is I can make treaties with these other kings. And back in the day... Some 3,000 years ago, when you wanted to make a treaty with another king, you didn't get your congress to sign that or your ambassadors to do that. You married a king's daughter. And so what Solomon did is he developed 700 wives and 300 concubines. He did that to, to create peace in his own mind between Israel and all the other kingdoms around. Do you know what those ladies did because they came from foreign lands and Worship foreign gods. I think I can imagine that early on in Solomon's life, in his early marriages, he just said, you can go worship your deities. You know, I'll give you some space to do that. But eventually those ladies came to him and they, they said, Solomon, why don't you come with, uh, with me to worship my deity? And he did, and he'd go with this one and he'd go with that one. And eventually what happened is Solomon's heart was turned. Instead of fearing God and keeping his commandments and realizing he was going to stand under judgment one day, what had happened over a course of years, probably decades of Solomon's life, is he was changed. The patterns of his behavior were different. Instead of worshiping God alone, he had been shaped by all of the encompassing relationships that he had with the wives and the nations of the people. And that's why he said things are vain. He started pursuing the wrong things. And where does that leave us? A liturgy is something that forms or shapes. In Christian practice, it's something we do when we gather for worship. We have a worship liturgy. We praise God, we confess, we acknowledge the gospel, and we send. A general pattern for our worship services. We have a baptismal liturgy or a Lord's Supper liturgy. Those liturgies are aimed at forming and shaping us, guiding our understanding and guiding our practice. But we're not the only ones that have liturgies. Uh, in his book, 
Wonderful book, You Are What You Love, James Smith. It's in your uh, resources in, in your worship guide. I would commend that to any of you. Uh, he talks about cultural liturgies or secular liturgies, things that shape us and form us, and we don't even realize that they're shaping and that they're forming us, that they're, that they're affecting us in certain ways or certain patterns. Uh, he says, our idolatries, Smith says, are more liturgical than theological. He goes on to argue that God has created us for himself and our hearts are designed to find their end in him. Yet many of us spend our days restlessly craving for rival gods, frenetically pursuing rival kingdoms. The subconscious longings of our hearts are aimed and directed elsewhere. Our orientation is askew. Our compass malfunctions. It gives us false bearings. And when this happens, the results can be disastrous. In other words, what... what uh, James Smith observes, and I think it applies to the book of Ecclesiastes, is here's where Solomon went wrong. He started pursuing the wrong things. He was shaped by all the wrong liturgies. The things that he should have pursued God, he stopped pursuing and he started pursuing you know, peace with, with that foreign wife who, who wanted to worship a different deity, and it changed his heart. And folks, I think that's exactly what's going on in our world today. I think that's exactly what's going on with so many people who claim to be followers of Jesus. We have formational liturgies that are shaping what we believe. They're shaping how we practice. They're shaping how we walk and live our lives. They're shaping our values. And we're not even entirely aware of all the ones that are shaping us in ways that are, uh, that are problematic for our Christian faith. Let me give you a, a quote from someone who's not a Christian. David Foster Wallace is an essayist. Uh, and, a, and a thinker, not a Christian at all, but he was speaking to a, a group of graduates at Kenyon College. It's an extended quote, but I think it explains this way better than I could say it. He said this to the students there that were graduating. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. An outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it Jesus Christ or Allah, Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some other infrangible set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you choose to worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and... Beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. When time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified in myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, and parables. The skeleton of every great story. The trick is keeping the truth up in front of our daily consciousness. Worship power and you will feel weak and afraid and you'll need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid. A fraud always on the verge of being found out. Then he says this, The insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they are unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. I don't agree with that whole quote. I think we worship the one true God, we should, and I think many of the things we do are inherently sinful in their practices. But I think he's exactly right 
The most problematic of the formational liturgies that you and I experience are the ones that are unconscious. We just do them. And we're unaware of how doing them is really shaping us and forming us in ways that are inconsistent with what God's Word says. Let me give you some illustrations. Netflix. Many of you have a streaming app called Netflix and you watch things on Netflix. Do you realize Netflix isn't just a plethora of choices that you make? It tells you what to watch. It provides, here's what we think you'll like. In other words, it is aiming to get you to stay on that particular streaming app. It, it shapes us, shapes what we think. Our smartphones are not just tools that help us stay connected. They're changing the way we think. I mentioned this before. How many times have you been out in public settings and everybody is like this? And by the way, they're wonderful tools that help us do wonderful things. But they also shape the way we behave and shape the way we think. Some of us are so controlled by this that if we set this aside for a week of our lives, we wouldn't know what to do with our time, with our thoughts, with our energy. Social media isn't just social. It's not just a way to interact with other people. Social media changes our values. How many of you have scrolled through Facebook at some point and walked away feeling jealous and, and kind of sad? Because what you're seeing is the curated images of all the people who have life that's better than you. Or at least that's what it appears like on the Facebook posts that they give you. You know, their life's better. And so what do you do? You walk away, oh, man, I wish I had that. And I wish I had that. And my life's not good enough. And I need to do better pictures. And I mean, that's what we think. It's shaping us. It's not, just, it's not just something that's in front of us communicating something. It's changing the way we think. TikTok videos. I mean, I mean I'm not going to say what the videos are that stupid people do. But there are stupid people that come up with stupid things to do. Right? And then they film themselves doing stupid things. Thank heavens TikTok was not available when my dad was growing up. When I was growing up, the things we did, that, man, we didn't film for everybody else to see. Thank heavens, there's not a film of some of those stuff. You feel the same way I do. But we put it on social media, and then what do other stupid people do? They do what other stupid people are showing them on video. It's shaping them. And in some situations, folks, people are dying. Because somebody decided to film themselves doing something stupid that somebody else would then follow up. That is formation. That is someone being changed by something that they're viewing. Instagram. How many teenage girls are being ruined because their pictures aren't as good as the pictures of somebody else? And they spend their entire teenage years obsessing over the fact they don't look like that image that they're seeing on their social media. I'm telling you, social media is forming and shaping our behaviors. Let me give you an illustration of my own life. I am a nicer, less anxious, less argumentative person when I watch less news and listen to less talk radio. My, my family will tell you that. You know why? Because the news, whatever platform you like, a little bit left or a little bit right or claim to be central or center or libertarian, the news has an agenda these days to keep you watching and paying attention. And one of the best ways they can do that is to get you angry, to get you angry at the other side. If they can get you angry at the other side, they can keep you watching and coming back for more news. 
talk radios, very similar, the same way. And so what happens when that is constantly what we're listening and paying attention to, then you know what forms everything that we think? We think about it through the lens of that particular news media or, or that viewpoint of news media that's shaping us. It, it, here's what it means. It means, folks, that you and I as Christians need to do a good job inventorying the things or identifying the things that are forming us. I'll give you some practical advice. I would encourage you at some point today, some point this week, to write down the things in your life that are shaping you. Is it the television programs you're watching? Is it the, the apps that you constantly go back to? Is it your smartphone? Is it decisions about what we do with our families and kids? It doesn't write down the things that are forming and evaluate those formational liturgies in your life and say, okay, are these bringing me into a relationship with God or am I going to look back one day and say with Solomon, vanity, vanity, vanity. Because I promise you a lot of the stuff that we do by rote and habit now, what we pick up, we can just call it what it is. It's vanity. We need to identify, identify the formational liturgies that are shaping us away from Christ. Here's the second practical application that comes from the text. We need to pursue God who alone can reform us through the gospel. So, so how do we push back? How do we change our behaviors in a way that would please God and that would reshape us? Well, we would pursue God. He's the only one that can change us. He's the only one that can truly reform us. Uh, the self-help gospel isn't going to work. We can't just habit our ways out of bad behaviors. Although that's a part, we'll talk about that in a minute, we need to pursue God. That's why the text ends with, here's the end of the matter. What does it say? What's the, what's the next thing? Fear God. Fear God and keep his commandments. In other words, see God for the greatness that he is. See him for who he, who he reveals himself to be. Glorify him. Acknowledge him. Worship him. Submit to him. I, 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 the, the fear of God is described in the book of Proverbs as well as the beginning of knowledge. It is the, really the starting point for Christian experience. It's the starting point for religious faith in God. In God. It's fearing him. It's acknowledging that he is holy he is right, he is righteous, he is worthy of being submitted to. I'm going to be honest with you, as a pastor watching Christianity in American culture, I think one of the greatest problems of American Christianity is the lack of fear of God in our churches and in our Christian experiences. Here's why. A lot of people treat God as if he is on their calendar. It's 11 o'clock. Sunday morning, and so here, here's the God time in my calendar. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go do my God thing on Sunday. I'm going to listen to some music, maybe sing along if I really like the song, and, and then I'm going to try to stay awake when the preacher preaches, and I'm going to walk out of there because I'm going to feel a little bit guilty, and then I'm going to feel a little bit better because the preacher talked about the gospel, and I'm going to walk back into my, into my daily experience, and I've done my God time for the week, and that's it. And for some people, that God time doesn't even come once a week. It may come once a month. It may come once every six weeks. It may come once every two or three months. And, and that's it. God's going to get a little piece of their calendar. Folks, that's not the fear of God. can be. Because the fear of God acknowledges that he is the one who is worthy of being praised and submitted to, surrendered to. That's why it's qualified, fear God, and keep his commandments. What it means to fear God is to do what he says. 
If we say we fear God and we don't do what he says, we don't really fear God. Jesus said something very similar in John 15. He said, if you love me, you'll abide in me. And what does it mean to abide in me? Keep my commandments. If you love me, you will do what I say. If you fear me, you will do what I say. And the, the, the epilogue here, the postscript in Ecclesiastes says, if you don't want to live a meaningless life, then here's what you need to do. You need to make sure you fear God and you need to make sure you obey his commandments. And where does that start? I think it starts, I believe wholeheartedly it starts with biblical worship. With the gathered worship of God's people, Nicholas Wolterstorff put it this way. He said the, the liturgy that the reformers understood and practiced consists of God acting and us responding through the work of the Spirit. Let me say it this way. I don't believe that worship is primarily expressive. It's formative. Meaning that it... it here's, here's what I mean by this. God is not waiting in heaven on the gathered congregation at Wilkesboro Baptist Church to smile a little bit and sing a song and raise hands. It can be, by the way, worship can be expressive. The point is God doesn't need our expressions. God isn't waiting on us to express what we feel or what we enjoy or what we like. God's not waiting on those things. Why is God not waiting on those things? Because God is sufficient in and of himself. He doesn't need us to worship. Why do we gather for worship then? Because God wants to change us. God wants to form us. God wants to reshape us. God wants to deliver us from meaningless existence. God wants to deliver us from vanities that, that change our, our desires and our thoughts and our longings. God doesn't want us to wake up one day and realize that we're like Solomon in the end of his life at Ecclesiastes and look back at our life and say, all is meaningless. God doesn't long for that for us. God sent Jesus to redeem us and rescue us and bring us into a relationship with himself so that when we gather as his people and we're formed in Christian worship so that we are removed from those formational liturgies that move us away from Christ and we're shaped by Christian worship. James Smith puts it this way. Worship in the arena is the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts, reforms our desires, and rehabituates our loves. In other words, when we gather here and we sing and we praise and we open up God's word and we let Colossians have its work, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly and all that, here's what God's doing. He is taking all that stuff that we've spent all that wasted time on this week. He's taking it and he's... Correcting it. He's convicting it. He's reshaping it. He's drawing us back to himself. He's reforming us. And that's why the reformation process, the formation process of Christian living has to happen or at least begin in Christian worship. If we neglect this, we neglect the only thing powerful enough to change us, which is God himself. I can't change myself just by habits. I need good habits. But I need God to act and intervene. And by the way, that's why Christian worship is so important. It's not us acting. It's not us doing. It's God working. We're a part of it. We get to be a part of it. It's glorious privilege. It's one reason why we shouldn't miss often. Because God's doing stuff in our midst. And we need to be a part of what God's doing. Let me make this really practical. And I'm, I'm going to just warn you, I'm going to meddle. Okay? So if you don't want to be meddled with, you can just turn your ears off. But if you decide to do that, you're probably one who needs to hear what I'm going to meddle about. But anyway, here it is. James Smith puts it this way. He said, spiritual formation in Christ requires a lot of rehabituation precisely because we build up so many disordered habits over a lifetime. This is also why the spiritual formation of children 
is one of the most significant callings of the body of Christ. Every child raised in the church and in a Christian home has the opportunity to be immersed in kingdom-indexed, habit-forming practices from birth. This is why intentionality about the formation of children itself is a gift of the Spirit. It's also why carelessness and inattention to the deformative power of cultural liturgies can have such a long-lasting effect. The plasticity of children's habits and imaginations is an opportunity and a challenge. In other words, moms and dads, grandparents, those of you that are responsible for your own souls and for the souls of those in your home, if we don't lead our families to worship regularly and consistently and be underneath the habit-forming, habit-changing life of Christian worship, then guess what's going to happen? All the formational liturgies that surround us, the cultural liturgies, the secular liturgies, they're going to shape what our kids think and do, how they believe and how they behave. Now, I'm not going to get legalistic, but I am going to meddle for a moment, okay? I'm not going to tell you what you can and can't do, but I just want to remind you of this. Every time you pick up your phone to scroll on it at home and your kids are watching that, every time, it has an effect. It is shaping you or shaping someone else. Every time that we choose a weekend of sports over a weekend of worship, we're making a value statement. We're saying that this thing matters more in the life of my kids and my family than God and the worship of God's people. Every time. I'm not saying you can't ever do that. I'm just saying we need to be honest with ourselves that we are making decisions that are going to form and shape the way we think and the way others think. Every time you let your children decide not to go to worship because they don't want to go to church, you're making a decision about your, your, your values and what's important. And that's a complaint of some people. Some parents don't want to bring their kids to church because it's a fight. I'm not, I'm not going to make my kids come to church. By the way, who is the kid? I'm, I'm, I am going to meddle here for a moment, so just, just bear with me, okay? A kid is anyone who is living in your house, eating your food, not paying rent. Okay, I don't care if they're 19, if they're 25. If they are not paying rent, if they're not taking care of their own bills, they're your kid responsible to do what you say to do. I realize the balance of that shifts, but they're yours, okay? And when did we start not, not telling our kids what was good for them? Listen, I, I know of parents and I know of families who, who they don't bring their kids to church because they want their kids to like them and their kids don't like church. Okay, well, those kids brush their teeth, go to school, and take baths. I've got two boys, 12 and 9. They don't like to brush their teeth. I've got one. I'm not going to tell you which one he is. He doesn't like to wash his hands with soap. It's the grossest thing in the world. Uh, we've got... <laughs> My kids don't like to take baths, except my son who takes hour-long showers. You know, they don't like to necessarily go to school. They don't like to do what's good for them. They don't like to go to the dentist. They don't like to get shots. Guess what? We make the decisions for what is best for them. We tell them what they need to do. And as parents, 
Christian parents who have children who are living in our homes, they don't get a choice of whether to come to church. Why? Because we want what's best for them. We know what's best for them. Moms and dads, you are responsible for guiding your family into spiritual formational patterns that will help them understand what it means to follow Christ and walk with God. If they are making all the decisions as children, they're misaligned, they're misoriented, and one day we're all going to wake up and think, Man, we just wasted a whole lot of our lives on vain things. You say, Pastor, this sounds really difficult. It is. I won't be honest with you. Some of the hardest things we're ever going to do are making sure that we shape ourselves through Christian worship and practices and making sure we obey God and keep His commands. But there's an absolutely vital reason why this has to be something that we pursue. Notice the last verse. For God will bring every deed into judgment... With every secret thing, whether good or evil. Did you hear that? There is coming a day when every single one of us is going to stand before God. And you know what? We're going to give an account for every thought we thought, every word we spoke, every video we watched, everything we scrolled through, every bit of time we wasted, every decision that we made either to do this or to do that. We're going to give an account for everything. Notice that every secret thing, whether good or evil. I may not see it. Your kids may not see everything, but God sees everything. And one day, every single one of us will stand and give an account for it. We're going to face judgment. Paul puts it this way in the book of Corinthians. He said, when we face judgment, the judgment seat of Christ, wood, hay, and stubble. A lot of our lives are made up of that. And when we go through the fire, it's going to be burned up. It's a breath. It's gone. It's done. Worthless. Vain. Impotent. Doesn't matter. It won't last any longer. That's why we need Jesus. See, either you and I are going to face the judgment of God and try to somehow compare our lives to other people's lives. We're either going to do that and we're going to fall staggeringly short and spend eternity separated from God or we're going to let Jesus experience the judgment for us. See, the beautiful thing about looking at the book of Ecclesiastes from a Christian perspective, a New Testament perspective, is that the judgment we can anticipate, folks, for us who have trusted in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, already happened. A judgment took place on a cross some 2,000 years ago. The hope of our lives isn't in somehow changing our habits enough so that we're not formed by the world. The hope is in focusing on a relationship with Jesus. You know who got me out of my funk this week? Jesus did. Jesus is the one that came in through his word and helped me work out of what I was really struggling with. He is real. He is at work. And we need the gospel. Jesus who took our punishment. Jesus who experienced our judgment. He rescued us. And he's the one who will enable us to focus on him, to fear God in worship, to to obey his commands and to walk with him day by day so that we're not like whoever else the world wants to make us to be. Let me close with this illustration. Ties everything up. In 1914, not long after the Titanic sunk, uh, the United States Congress convened a hearing to discern what happened in another nautical disaster. The steamship Monroe was rammed by the merchant vessel, the Nantucket, and uh, one one of the vessels sank. 41 sailors lost their lives. It was a foggy morning in Virginia that day. And one of the captains was arraigned on charges. The other captain, though, 
was uh, grilled on the stand for more than five hours. Here's why he was grilled. Because he was navigating the Monroe with a steering compass that deviated as much as two degrees from the standard magnetic compass. He said the instrument was sufficiently true to run the ship and that it was the custom of the masters in the coastwise trade to use such compasses. His steering compass had never been adjusted in the one year that he was master of the Monroe. The faulty compass seemed adequate for navigation, but it eventually proved otherwise. Coupled with the foggy morning, it resulted in a terrible disaster, 41 lost lives. At the end of the trial, the New York Times uh, wrote this and posted this scene. The two captains met, clasped hands, and they sobbed on each other's shoulders because of the misalignment of the ships. Folks, there are people that are going to stand before God one day, and their lives might not have been terribly off, but they were just a little bit off. They were formed by all the vanities of the world. And one day they're going to stand before God and give an account for that misalignment and misorientation. Let that not be us. Let us be shaped by the God who sent Jesus to give us meaning, value, something that's not wasted. That's the only place we can have meaning is in a relationship with Jesus. Maybe you're here today. And you are on the wrong path. You are misaligned. I would invite you that let today be the day where you confess your sins, repent of your unrighteousness, and turn to God through Jesus Christ. Moms and dads, parents, grandparents, maybe you're here and you feel convicted. I Believe me, I've been convicted all week. And I've been convicted every time I've written a part of this sermon. I'm, I'm as guilty of these things as I'm preaching to you folks. Maybe we need to identify the foundational patterns that are, that are pushing us away from God. Let me commend you, close with a commendation. This service, more than any of the other services, has families in it. Families that have already gone to Sunday school and that have gathered for worship. To you, I say amen. Your kids will never learn how to worship if they don't worship with you. They'll never value it if they don't worship with you. Thank you for doing that. Let's let God form us and shape us in the person of who Jesus wants us to be. If you need to trust Jesus to be your Savior, will you come trust Jesus to be your Savior today? If you need to confess some things, this altar will be open. If you need to just spend some time beginning that identification process in your own life, let this time of invitation begin that for you. Let's pray. Stand with me, if you will. Father, I come to you this day. We come to you this day as a congregation. And truth be told, so many of us are guilty of so many, allowing so many cultural and secular forming liturgies govern what we do. I pray that you would give us, in the grace of your Holy Spirit, the wisdom to identify those that are harming us and those that are shaping us with values that are not biblical. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you'd help us as a congregation when we gather every week to do so in, in, a, in a spiritually shaping reality of the worship of God. 
I pray, Lord, that every time we gather, we'd not be the same and we'd be remade and reformed through the work of Jesus and his gospel. I do pray, Heavenly Father, that you'd work in our hearts and lives as Christ followers uh, to make us into people who love you and who follow you with our behavior and who live in relationship with Jesus who redeemed us. Lord, I pray for those in the room today that need Christ and need forgiveness and need salvation. I pray that today would be the day they would turn their hearts to you and they would become Christ followers, no longer living in meaninglessness and vapor, but coming to God through Christ and having meaning in life. We pray this in Christ's name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.